Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two of Steep Trails. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Steep Trails by John Muir. Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two The Grand Canyon of the Colorado. Strange to say, in the full white effulgence of the midday hours, the bright colors grow dim and terrestrial in common gray haze, and the rocks, after the manner of mountains, seem to crouch and drowse and shrink to less than half their real stature, and have nothing to say to one, as if not at home but it is fine to see how quickly they come to life and grow radiant and communicative as soon as a band of white clouds come floating by as if shouting for joy they seem to spring up to meet them in hearty salutation eager to touch them and beg their blessings it is just in the midst of these dull midday hours that the canyon clouds are born a good storm cloud full of lightning and rain on its way to its work on a sunny desert day is a glorious object across the canyon opposite the hotel is a little tributary of the colorado called bright angel creek a fountain cloud still better deserves the name angel of the desert wells clad in bright plumage, carrying cool shade and living water to countless animals and plants ready to perish, noble in form and gesture, seeming able for anything, pouring life-giving wonder-working floods from its alabaster fountains, as if some sky-lake had broken. To every gulch and gorge on its favorite ground, is given a passionate torrent, roaring, replying to the rejoicing lightning, stones, tons in weight, hurrying away as if frightened, showing something of the way Grand Canyon work is done. Most of the fertile summer clouds of the canyon are of this sort, massive, swelling cumuli, growing rapidly, displaying delicious tones of purple and gray in the hollows of their sun-beaten houses, showering favored areas of the heated landscape, and vanishing in an hour or two. Some, busy and thoughtful-looking, glide with beautiful motion along the middle of the canyon in flocks, turning aside here and there, lingering as if studying the needs of particular spots, exploring side canyons, peering into hollows like birds seeding nest places, or hovering aloft on outspread wings. They scan all the red wilderness, dispensing their blessings of cool shadows and rain, where the need is the greatest, refreshing the rocks, their offspring, as well as the vegetation, continuing their sculpture, deepening gorges and sharpening peaks. Sometimes, blending all together, 
they weave a ceiling from rim to rim, perhaps opening a window here and there for sunshine to stream through, suddenly lighting some palace or temple, and making it flare in the rain as if on fire. Sometimes, as one sits gazing from a high jutting promontory, the sky all clear, showing not the slightest wisp or penciling, a bright band of cumuli will appear suddenly, coming up the canyon in single file, as if tracing a well-known trail, passing in review, each in turn darting its lances and dropping its shower, making a row of little vertical rivers in the air high above the big brown one. Others seem to grow from mere points and fly high above the canyon, yet following its course for a long time, noiseless as if hunting, then suddenly darting lightning at unseen marks, and hurrying on. Or they loiter here and there as if idle, like laborers out of work, waiting to be hired. Half a dozen or more showers may sometimes be seen falling at once, while far the greater part of the sky is in sunshine, and not a raindrop comes nigh one. These thunder showers, from as many separate clouds, looking like wisps of long hair, may vary greatly in effects. The pale, faint streaks are showers that fail to reach the ground, being evaporated on the way down through the dry, thirsty air, like streams in deserts. Many, on the other hand, which in the distance seem insignificant, are really heavy rain, however local. These are the gray wisps, well zigzagged with lightning. The darker ones are torrent rain, which on broad, steep slopes of favorable conformation give rise to so-called cloudbursts, and wonderful is the commotion they cause. The gorges and gulches below them, usually dry, break out in loud uproar with a sudden downrush of muddy, boulder-laden floods. Down they all go in one simultaneous gush, roaring like lions rudely awakened, each of the tawny brood actually kicking up a dust at the first onset. Despite the winter months, snowfalls over all the high plateau, usually to a considerable depth, whitening the rim and the roofs of the canyon buildings. But last winter, when I arrived at Bright Angel in the middle of January, there was no snow in sight, and the ground was dry, greatly to my disappointment, for I had made the trip mainly to see the canyon in its winter garb. Soothingly, I was informed that this was an exceptional season, and that the good snow might arrive at any time. After waiting a few days, I gladly hailed a broad-browed cloud coming grandly on from the west, in big promising blackness, very unlike the white sailors of the summer skies. Under the lee of a rim ledge, with another snow-lover, I watched its movements as it took possession of the canyon and all the adjacent region in sight. 
trailing its gray fringes over the spiry tops of the great temples and towers it gradually settled lower embracing them all with ineffable kindness and gentleness of touch and fondled the little cedars and pines as they quivered eagerly in the wind like young birds begging their mothers to feed them the first flakes and crystals began to fly about noon sweeping straight up the middle of the canyon and swirling in magnificent eddies along the sides gradually the hardy swarms closed their ranks and all the canyon was lost in gray bloom except a short section of the wall and a few trees beside us which looked glad with snow in their needles and about their feet as they leaned out over the gulf suddenly the storm opened with magical effect to the north over the canyon of bright angel creek enclosing a sunlit mass of the canyon architecture spanned by great white concentric arches of cloud like the bows of a silvery aurora above these and a little back of them was a series of upboiling purple clouds and high above all in the background a range of noble cumuli towered aloft like snow-laden mountains their pure pearl bosses flooded with sunshine the whole noble picture calmly glowing was framed in thick gray gloom which soon closed over it and the storm went on opening and closing until night covered all two days later when we were on a jutting point about eighteen miles east of bright angel and one thousand feet higher we enjoyed another storm of equal glory as to cloud effects though only a few inches of snow fell before the storm began we had a magnificent view of this grander upper part of the canyon and also of the coconino forest and the painted desert the march of the clouds with their storm banners flying over this sublime landscape was unspeakably glorious and so also was the breaking up of the storm next morning the mingling of silver-capped rock sunshine and cloud most tourists make out to be in a hurry even here therefore their days or hours would be best spent on the promontories nearest the hotel yet a surprising number go down the bright angel trail to the brink of the inner gloomy granite gorge overlooking the river deep canyons attract like high mountains the deeper they are the more surely are we drawn into them on foot of course there is no danger whatever and with ordinary precautions but little on animals in comfortable tourist faith unthinking unfearing down go men women and children on whatever is offered horse mule or burro as if saying with john paul fear nothing but fear not without reason for these canyon trails down the stairways of the gods are less dangerous than they seem less dangerous than home stairs 
The guides are cautious, and so are the experienced, much-enduring beasts. The scrawniest Rocinantes and wizened rat mules cling hard to the rocks, endwise or sidewise, like lizards or ants. From terrace to terrace, climate to climate, down one creeps in sun and shade, through gorge and gully and grassy ravine, and after a long scramble on foot, at last, beneath the mighty cliffs, one comes to the grand, roaring river. To the mountaineer, the depth of the canyon, from five thousand to six thousand feet, will not seem so very wonderful, for he has often explored others that are about as deep. But the most experienced will be awestruck by the vast extent of huge rock monuments, of pointed masonry, built up in regular courses, towering above, beneath, and round about him, by the bright angel trail, the last fifteen hundred feet of the descent to the river has to be made afoot down the gorge of Indian Garden Creek. Most of the visitors do not like this part, and are content to stop at the end of the horse trail and look down on the dull brown flood from the edge of the Indian Garden Plateau. By the New Hance Trail, excepting a few daringly steep spots, you can ride all the way to the river, where there is good spacious campground in a mesquite grove. This trail, built by brave Hance, begins on the highest part of the rim, 8,000 feet above the sea, a thousand feet higher than the head of Bright Angel Trail and the descent is a little over six thousand feet, through a wonderful variety of climate and life. Often, late in the fall, when frosty winds are blowing, and snow is flying at one end of the trail, tender plants are blooming in balmy summer weather at the other. The trip down and up can be made, afoot, easily in a day. In this way, one is free to observe the scenery and vegetation, instead of merely clinging to his animal and watching its steps. But all who have time should go prepared to camp a while on the river bank, to rest and learn something about the plants and animals and the mighty flood roaring past. In cool, shady amphitheaters at the head of the trail, there are groves of white silver fir and Douglas spruce, with ferns and saxifrages that recall snowy mountains. Below these, yellow pine, nut pine, juniper, hop hornbeam, ash, maple, holly-leaved berberus, kawanya, spiraea, dwarf oak, and other small shrubs and trees. In dry gulches and on taluses and sun-beaten crags are sparsely scattered yuccas, cactuses, agave, etc. Where springs gush from the rocks, there are willow thickets, grassy flats, and bright flowery gardens. In the hottest recesses, the delicate abronia, mesquite, woody compositae, 
and aborescent cactuses. The most striking and characteristic part of this widely varied vegetation are the cactaceae, strange, leafless, old-fashioned plants with beautiful flowers and fruit, in every way able and admirable, while grimly defending themselves with innumerable barbed spears, they offer both food and drink to man and beast. Their juicy globes and discs and fluted cylindrical columns are almost the only desert wells that never go dry, and they always seem to rejoice the more and grow plumper and juicier the hotter the sunshine and sand. Some are spherical, like rolled-up porcupines, crouching in rock hollows beneath a mist of grey lances, unmoved by the wildest winds, others standing as erect as bushes and trees, or tall, branchless pillars crowned with magnificent flowers, their prickly armour sparkling, look boldly abroad over the glaring desert, making the strangest forests ever seen or dreamed of. Sirius Giganteus, the grim chief of the desert tribe, is often thirty or forty feet high in southern Arizona. Several species of tree yuccas in the same desert, laden in early spring with superb white lilies, form forests hardly less wonderful though here they grow singly or in small lonely groves the low almost stemless yucca bacata with beautiful lily flowers and sweet banana-like fruit prized by the indians is common along the canyon rim growing on lean rocky soil beneath mountain mahogany nut pines and junipers beside dense flowery mats spiraea cispatosa and the beautifully pinnate-leaved Spiraea millefolia. The nut-pine, Pinus edulis, scattered along the upper slopes and roofs of the canyon buildings, is the principal tree of the strange dwarf Coconino forest. It is a picturesque stub of a pine, about twenty-five feet high, usually with dead, lichened limbs, thrust through its rounded head, and grows on crags and fissured rock-tables, braving heat and frost, snow and drought, and continuing patiently, faithfully fruitful for centuries, Indians and insects and almost every desert bird and beast come to it to be fed. To civilized people from corn and cattle and wheat-field countries, the canyon at first sight seems as uninhabitable as a glacier crevasse, utterly silent and barren. Nevertheless, it is the home of the multitude of our fellow mortals, men as well as animals and plants. Centuries ago it was inhabited by tribes of Indians who, long before Columbus saw America, built thousands of stone houses in its crags, and large ones, some of them several stories high, with hundreds of rooms, on the mesas of the adjacent regions. Their cliff dwellings, almost numberless, are still to be seen in the canyon, scattered along both sides from top to bottom, and throughout its entire length, 
built of stone and mortar, in seams and fissures like swallows' nests, or on isolated ridges and peaks. The ruins of larger buildings are found on open spots by the river, but most of them aloft on the brink of the wildest, giddiest precipices, sites evidently chosen for safety from enemies, and seemingly accessible only to the birds of the air. Many caves were also used as dwelling places, as, as were mere seams on cliff fronts, formed by unequal weathering and with or without outer or side walls, and some of them were covered with colored pictures of animals. The most interesting of these cliff dwellings had pathetic little ribbon-like strips of garden on narrow terraces, where irrigating water could be carried to them, most romantic of sky gardens, but eloquent of hard times. In recesses along the river, and on the first plateau flats above its gorge, were fields and gardens of considerable size, where irrigating ditches may still be traced. Some of these ancient gardens are still cultivated by Indians, descendants of cliff-dwellers, who raise corn, squashes, melons, potatoes, etc., to reinforce the produce of the many wild food-furnishing plants, nuts, beans, berries, yucca and cactus fruits, grass and sunflower seeds, etc., and the flesh of animals, deer, rabbits, lizards, etc. The canyon Indians I have met here seem to be living much as did their ancestors, though not now driven into rock dens. They are able, erect men with commanding eyes, which nothing that they wish to see can escape. They are never in a hurry, have a strikingly measured, deliberate, bearish manner of moving the limbs and turning the head, are capable of enduring weather, thirst, hunger, and overabundance, and are blessed with stomachs which triumph over everything the wilderness may offer. Evidently, their lives are not bitter. The largest of the canyon animals one is likely to see is the wild sheep, or Rocky Mountain Bighorn, a most admirable beast, with limbs that never fail, at home on the most nerve-trying precipices, acquainted with all the springs and passes and broken-down, jumpable places in the sheer ribbon cliffs, bounding from crag to crag in easy grace and confidence of strength. His great horns held high above his shoulders, wild red blood beating and hissing through every fibre of him, like the wind through a quivering mountain pine. Deer also are occasionally met in the canyon, making their way to the river when the wells of the plateau are dry. Along the short spring streams, beavers are still busy, as is shown by the cottonwood and willow timber they have cut and peeled, found in all the river drift heaps. In the most barren cliffs and gulches there dwell a multitude of lesser animals, well-dressed, clear-eyed, happy little beasts, wood-rats, 
kangaroo rats, gophers, wood mice, skunks, rabbits, bobcats, and many others, gathering food or dozing in their sun-warmed dens. Lizards, too, of every kind and color, are here enjoying life on the hot cliffs, and making the brightest of them brighter. Nor is there any lack of feathered people. The golden eagle may be seen, and the osprey, hawks, jays, hummingbirds, the morning dove, and cheery familiar singers, the black-headed grosbeak, robin, bluebird, townsend's thrush, and many warblers, sailing the sky and enlivening the rocks and bushes through all the canyon wilderness. Here at Hans's River Camp, or a few miles above it, brave Powell and his brave men passed their first night in the canyon on the adventurous voyage of discovery thirty-three years ago. They faced a thousand dangers, open or hidden, now in their boats gladly sliding down swift, smooth reaches, now rolled over and over in back-combing surges of rough, roaring cataracts, sucked under in eddies, swimming like beavers, tossed and beaten like castaway drift, stout-hearted, undaunted, doing their work through it all. After a month of this, they floated smoothly out of the dark, gloomy, roaring abyss into light and safety, two hundred miles below. As the flood rushes past us, heavy laden with desert mud, we naturally think of its sources, its countless silvery branches outspread on thousands of snowy mountains along the crest of the continent, and the life of them, the beauty of them, their history and romance. Its topmost springs are far north and east in Wyoming and Colorado, on the snowy Wind River, Front, Park, and Sawatch Ranges, dividing the two ocean waters, and the Elk, Wasatch, Uinta, and innumerable spurs streaked with streams, made famous by early explorers and hunters. It is a river of rivers, the Duchesne, San Rafael, Yampa, Dolores, Gunnison, Cochetopa, Uncompagre, Eagle and Roaring Rivers, the Green and the Grand, and scores of others with branches innumerable, as mad and glad a band as ever sang on mountains, descending in glory of foam and spray from snowbanks and glaciers through their rocky, moraine-dammed, beaver-dammed channels. Then, all emerging from dark balsam and pine woods and coming together, they meander through wide, sunny park valleys, and at length enter the great plateau and flow in deep canyons, the beginning of the system culminating in this grand canyon of canyons. Our warm canyon camp is also a good place to give a thought to the glaciers which still exist at the heads of the highest tributaries. Some of them are of considerable size, especially those on the Wind River 
and Sawatch ranges in Wyoming and Colorado. They are remnants of a vast system of glaciers, which recently covered the upper part of the Colorado Basin, sculptured its peaks, ridges, and valleys to their present forms, and extended far out over the plateau region. How far, I cannot now say. It appears, therefore, that however old the main trunk of the Colorado may be, all its widespread upper branches and the landscapes they flow through are new-born, scarce at all changed as yet in any important feature since they first came to light at the close of the glacial period. The so-called Grand Colorado Plateau of which the Grand Canyon is only one of the well-proportioned features, extends with a breadth of hundreds of miles from the flanks of the Wasatch and Park Mountains to the south of the San Francisco Peaks. Immediately to the north of the deepest part of the canyon, it rises in a series of subordinate plateaus, diversified with green meadows, marshes, bogs, ponds, forests, and grovey park valleys, a favorite Indian hunting ground, inhabited by elk, deer, beaver, etc. But far the greater part of the plateau is good sound desert, rocky, sandy, or fluffy with loose ashes and dust, dissected in some places into a labyrinth of stream-channel chasms, like cracks in a dry clay bed, or the narrow slit crevices of glaciers, blackened with lava flows, dotted with volcanoes and beautiful buttes, and lined with long, continuous escarpments, a vast bed of sediments of an ancient sea-bottom, still nearly as level as when first laid down, after being heaved into the sky a mile or two high. Walking quietly about in the valleys and byways of the Grand Canyon City, we learn something of the way it was made, and all must admire effects so great from means apparently so simple rain striking light hammer blows or heavier in streams with many rest sundays soft air and light gentle sappers and miners toiling forever the big river sawing the plateau asunder carrying away the eroded and ground waste and exposing the edges of the strata to the weather Rain torrents, sawing cross streets and alleys, exposing the strata in the same way in hundreds of sections, the softer, less resisting beds weathering and receding faster, thus undermining the harder beds, which fall not only in small weathered particles, but in heavy, sheer, cleaving masses, assisted down from time to time, by kindly earthquakes, rain torrents rushing the fallen material to the river, 
keeping the wall rocks constantly exposed. Thus, the canyon grows wider and deeper. So also do the side canyons and amphitheaters, while secondary gorges and cirques gradually isolate masses of the promontories, forming new buildings, all of which are being weathered and pulled and shaken down while being built, showing destruction and creation as one. We see the proudest temples and palaces in stateliest attitudes, wearing their sheets of detritus as royal robes, shedding off showers of red and yellow stones like trees in autumn, shedding their leaves, going to dust like beautiful days to night, proclaiming as with the tongues of angels the natural beauty of death. Every building is seen to be a remnant of once continuous beds of sediments, sand and slime on the floor of an ancient sea, and filled with the remains of animals, and every particle of the sandstones and limestones of these wonderful structures to be derived from other landscapes, weathered and rolled and ground in the storms and streams of other ages. And when we examine the escarpments, hills, buttes, and other monumental masses of the plateau on either side of the canyon, we discover that an amount of material has been carried off in the general denudation of the region compared with which even that carried away in the making of the Grand Canyon is as nothing. Thus, each wonder in sight becomes a window through which other wonders come to view. In no other part of this continent are the wonders of geology, the records of the world's old Lang Syne, more widely opened or displayed in higher piles. The whole canyon is a mine of fossils, in which five thousand feet of horizontal strata are exposed in regular succession over more than a thousand square miles of wall space. And on the adjacent plateau region there is another series of beds, twice as thick, forming a grand geological library, a collection of stone books covering thousands of miles of shelving, tier on tier, conveniently arranged for the student. And with what wonderful scriptures are their pages filled? myriad forms of successive floras and faunas, lavishly illustrated with colored drawings, carrying us back into the midst of the life of a past infinitely remote. And as we go on and on, studying this old, old life, in the light of the life 
beating warmly about us. We enrich and lengthen our own. End of chapter 24, part 2 And end of Steep Trails by John Muir Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox.